Next on PIJN News, Dr. Chaps reports on these important issues. The right to keep and bear arms. How does the Second Amendment correspond to the right to life? We interview pro-life conservative hero, Dr. Alan Keyes, also the Constitution and Electoral College. Former Navy Chaplain Gordon James Klingenschmidt took a stand to defend religious freedom by daring to pray publicly in Jesus' name. Now he helps you by reporting the news, discerning the spirits, and praying the scriptures. Would you pray with us? Here's Dr. Chaps. God bless you in Jesus' name. My name is Chaplain Gordon James Klingenschmidt, Dr. Chaps, and you're watching PIJN News. On this show, we like to do three things. We report the news, we discern the spirits, and we pray the scriptures in Jesus' name. But today we have a treat. We have a live in-studio interview with my longtime friend, constitutional scholar and conservative hero, Ambassador Alan Keyes. Welcome back, sir, to the program. Thank you, glad to be with you. So you are a Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the UN back in the 80s. Well, UN Economic and Social Council. I was yes. one of his ambassadors at the United Nations. And Assistant Secretary of State, and mm -hmm. you ran for president a couple times, and you uh, have studied the Constitution and articulate constitutional history better than anybody I know, I'll just be honest. Mm -hmm. And I've learned so much from you over the years. Uh, yesterday we were talking about presidential personalities like Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, and, and some of the other candidates. But you're saying there's something deeper, and before we get into the Electoral College, I wanna save that for uh, in a few minutes, talk for a minute about the Second Amendment and how that corresponds to our other rights like the right to life. Well, you know, I wish people would start the discussion of these amendments by rereading them carefully. Uh, because we allow our discussion to take place on the basis of the Second Amendment's about guns. Well, actually it's not. The Second Amendment actually tells you what it's about in the first phrase. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So what is the first thing you have to focus on if you're going to follow the logic of the Second Amendment? You have to focus on the meaning of the word well-regulated militia. What does that mean? And you also would ask the question, by whom regulated, right? Well, a well-regulated militia implies what the word regular implies, something done according to a rule. But when you're talking about basic rights, what is the first rule you have to consult? It's the rule of God, right? Because all of our unalienable rights, and the right involved in the Second Amendment is without any doubt a God-endowed unalienable right, all those unalienable rights are rooted in the very nature of our humanity as uh, 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 predicated on the authority of the Creator, the one who made us. So, what does it mean? What would be the goal of the Second Amendment if you look at the rule of God? Well, God gives us life, right? And that gift of life which God endows in us, we are supposed to do what's necessary to preserve it. And so, if somebody is attacking you to destroy your life, what's necessary to preserve it? That you defend yourself. Right. Therefore, when you defend yourself against someone who's trying to attack and take your life, you are following the rule of God. You are doing what's necessary to preserve His will for your existence, which is that you should go on existing, not that you should be killed by somebody who wants to take your apple and destroy your fields or kill your children. Uh, and so the first thing we have to think about is that the militia concept is not, first of all, about some vague notion of freedom. 
It's about doing what's right in the eyes of God by your own life and by the life of those who are part of your circle of responsibility, starting with your family. You were with me yesterday in the March for Life, the, the pro-life rally in front of the Colorado State House. You spoke articulately against abortion, against our national sin, but also in backing up to the definition of what is a God-given right compared to all these other fabricated rights that the left is coming up with today. How do you distinguish what is really a right? Well, see, I think I just explained it. Because what we walked through was the understanding of what's the freedom that's involved, right, in the Second Amendment. And we call it the Second Amendment right. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the, the second part of the wording. Why is it a right? It's a right because what you're doing is right according to the rule of God for our nature. To preserve yourself, to make sure that you, for instance, you're, you, you have to eat, you have to drink, so you get what's necessary from nature to eat and drink. That's right. It's your right to have that. Uh, that, by the way, is recognized in the scripture. That's why when you have a field and something falls off the field, you're not to go out there and beat people who are poor away and keep them from picking up that apple because God gives them the right to go get the apple that's fallen from your tree and might otherwise go to waste and use it. Yeah, and you're supposed to leave some, remember? The Old that, Testament that's the said Old Testament rule. Gleanings are okay. And, and yeah. that protection of gleanings, that need to respect gleanings, is a reflection of natural right, the rule of law according to God so that people can preserve themselves. Well, the right to keep and bear arms, same thing. But what is the aim of the right? The aim of the right is not some vague freedom to hunt and go out and shoot things. No, the aim of the right is to preserve life. The Second Amendment is a life-respecting amendment. It is based on the God-endowed right to life. That's the fundamental premise of it. And if you will the end, which is the preservation of life, as the founders would tell you and did repeatedly in the Federalist Papers, if you will the end, you must will the means to achieve the end. And the possession of the arms, that doesn't just mean guns in the old days, it might mean a stick, stones, arrows, whatever it is that you need to use to defend yourself. Those things, it is your natural right from God to possess. So the right involved in both the Second Amendment and the pro-life movement, that's the same right. It essentially has in view the right from God to defend and preserve our life. Now that right, second point, if God tells you you got to do something, is that just freedom or is it an obligation? That's an obligation. So the word right is exactly what it seems to imply. When you are exercising a right, you are doing what is right by whose authority? Well, in this particular case, you're doing what's right, not just by the permission of God, but by the command of God. Right? And so the Second Amendment is actually a pro-life amendment in principle that also reflects the fact that in our understanding, every right we have is rooted in, it's grounded in an obligation to obey God's law. We're gonna take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore that more about why it's, you never have a God-given right to do that which is wrong. This is PIJN News, defending your religious freedom. Dr. Chaps will be right back. Are you pro-life? Do you believe that abortion kills innocent children? If so, I want you to take action today and sign a petition at PrayInJesusName.org. Here's three petitions we need you to sign. The number one is to stop Planned Parenthood 
from getting your taxpayer dollars. Did you know they've received now $487 million in your taxpayer dollars? I don't think that's right. They use that money to facilitate 329,445 abortions, not really to pay for adoption or mammograms, but just to kill innocent children. Sign a petition today at PrayInJesusName.org. Here's number two petition we want you to sign, and that's to defund Obamacare. This bad healthcare law is now forcing Christian employers to pay for contraception, sterilization, and abortion pills free of charge for all their employees, or the Christian employer has to pay a $100 fine per day per employee. That's gonna bankrupt our friends like the Hobby Lobby Corporation, Christian business owners, and even Catholic hospitals now are being forced to pay for abortions. The Obama administration is now promoting the Plan B abortion pill over the counter for children as young as seven years old. Here's petition number three we need you to sign at PrayInJesusName.org to help pass Senate Bill 583, the Life Begins at Conception Act. This personhood bill, introduced by my friend, Senator Rand Paul, can actually defend life and help overturn Roe versus Wade. Take action today. I know you care about the unborn, but please sign a petition today at PrayInJesusName.org. We will fax that petition free of charge to your congressman. Sign a petition at PrayInJesusName.org. Take action today if you're pro-life. Empowering you, the grassroots activist. Here is Dr. Chaps. Welcome back, I'm Dr. Chaps. We're joined again by Dr. Ellen Keyes talking about constitutional law, the Second Amendment, its corresponding relation to the right to life, which is in our Declaration of Independence, obviously, endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, talk for a minute about where rights come from. If they come from natural law and from nature's God, then can you ever have, for example, the Supreme Court just found a right to homosexual marriage? Well, let, let's start it with the simple premise that what they're calling uh, right in that sense can't possibly be a fundamental right because it doesn't come from the authority of God. It's not built into our nature, quite the contrary. What's built into our nature is that attraction between male and female, which serves what? It serves the common good. It serves the procreation of the species as a whole. The great fallacy that they've been using and all the people who are proponents of so-called homosexual marriage, they act as if it's just a question of individual freedom, individual happiness. No, when you use sovereign power, right, the power that government possesses, the just use of sovereign power must always take account of the common good. That's been a premise of justice. It's a premise of justice in the Bible. It's a premise of justice all down through the history of anybody who distinguishes between what's just and unjust. So if you're just looking at the individual, you're, you haven't gotten to the point where you can actually justify using the force of law to impose respect for a certain behavior or activity. To, impose, to use the force of law to preserve respect, that activity must be a right. And the word right doesn't mean a freedom. It means to exercise, to be engaged in an activity that is right according to a rule. Whose rule? The rule of the God who made us, of the Creator who made us what we are. And that's not an abstraction, by the way. We now know, don't we, better than any generation in the history of the world, we know that God literally informs us through the very material out of which we're made. What is DNA? DNA is a certain kind of word. 
expressed in a biological sense and then communicated in various changes and ways in the body that then lead us to become or refrain from becoming certain things, right? Organs that's, that are established. But it also leads us to do or refrain from doing certain things. And so, so, so for instance, when we feel pain, we immediately jump away from something or want to get away from it. That is a response conducive to our good, to our preservation, that is communicated to us in the way that we are made. Well, our unalienable rights are God endowed in that sense. They, be, they are the warp and woof of our nature. Uh, and, and the premise is that we have an inc inclinations to do what is right. Like for instance, when a child is born, there's a natural inclination on the part of the mother to take care of that child. And every mother feels it. She may, some mothers may reject it, but they feel it. It's part of a feeling. This is me. This is part of me. This was part of me. And therefore still, they can practically still feel the child kicking within them. They know that this is part of their person, their body. And they respond to the child the way they respond to a hand that belongs to their body. This is of me. And that's a natural, right, inclination that is indicative of the information that underlies our exercise of right. When you feel that kind of an inclination to do what serves first your own preservation, yes, but then you're also going to do things that serve the preservation of the child, the mother, right, she's going to do that. So she's caring for another, not just herself. And of course, overall, what is the act of procreation? It's caring for the perpetuation of humanity as a whole. It's caring for the common good in the largest human sense uh, of all. And so that is always the underlying truth of right. And so when you read the Second Amendment, well, regulated means regulated according to those aims which allow you to be in a position to defend your community and your family against things that would destroy them. And you have an obligation to do that. In the old days, the word militia, Militia wasn't a choice. Militia was, by law, something you participated in. If you were an able-bodied man who possessed arms, you would go out and work with others to, so that you would know what to do if the community were attacked. I want to I expand on that word a little bit. Today, the word militia is kind of thrown around as a disparaging term toward any uh, group who wants to rise up against the government. You see what's happening in Oregon this past month and uh, various places. but. What did our founding fathers put that word in the Constitution? What is a militia in their eyes? Well, let's look at two separate things. First, look at the word militia. And I just actually gave what I think would have been accepted as the general definition of the word at the time of the founding. And that is all able-bodied uh, uh, men capable of bearing arms. That's the militia. Uh, and, and, and also with a little uh, uh, capable of, uh, the, in, in most cases, also possessing, right? So you had to have them to use them. So if you're somebody who didn't have a weapon, uh, you, you weren't under the same obligation as somebody who didn't have one. But the obligation would still be there if they were willing to provide you with one, right? right. And, and, that, and concepts of the militia developed. And, and that's why there were arsenals at the time when the British were marching on the arsenal. I think in Switzerland, they still have the government issues guns to yeah. every able-bodied male. And, and, and so there's an underlying sense of obligation and responsibility but the militia itself just describes a fact that there are able-bodied people capable of bearing arms and in possession of them somehow, and that's the militia. Okay? So the, and then the key thing, however, that a lot of people, even people who support the Second Amendment, seem to want to read it without the well-regulated part. But the well-regulated part is in there for a reason. 
Now that then gives rise to some controversy. Do you mean the national government gets to step in or something? No. You look look at it, and the regulation has to be in in conformity with the aim. And what was the first aim? To protect your family and your community. Who's going to make the decision about how to do what's done to protect your family? You will, especially if you look at the situation of the founders at that time. People were living in homesteads and relative distances from one another. The first line of defense was the family, knowing where the children should go to be safe in the event of an attack, uh, what the mother and father were going to do to cooperate to make sure that, you know, things were in place, that the guns were loaded, that there was a reloading uh, uh, capacity possible, setting up the house so that the windows would be properly shuttered, uh, uh, and but would also allow you to shoot at an enemy that was trying to uh, take care of the house, even digging so that if they tried to burn you out, there'd be a place of refuge you could go to or a way that you could escape from that. All this was the family's responsibility. And if you were a responsible, particularly a responsible parent or, or, or father, you would be the one who was charged with the duty to do that and you were in the league. Well, when families cooperated with each other, when they were faced with attacks and had the time to gather people within a stockade and so forth and so on, then the people who were part, elements of those families, responsible first for their own family, then they come together to try to work out a common plan of how all the families will be defended behind the stockade that in common they have maintained using the weapons and so forth. What's the final line of defense? The final line of defense might have been that there would be certain regular forces, probably at too much of a distance to have you survive for the first two or three days. So you better know how to take care of yourself for maybe three days, even a week, right? And then the rapid deployment force, we'd call them today, might come to your aid, but you sure had better know how to stay alive and maybe even defeat your enemy in those first days because otherwise you're going to be wiped out. Well, we have forgotten that that's the meaning of well-regulated. And who's in the lead in all of that? Local people, starting with people responsible for households, going to people who are then going to be selected by people responsible for the household to become the coordinators of their actions and activities when they're working to defend the whole community. That is the meaning of a well-regulated militia. We talked about if it was going to be organized at any level of government, maybe the local county sheriffs would be the best ones to organize the men in their community who are uh, armed and, and capable. Well, I think, in a, especially in, in the areas where we have elected sheriffs, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that if the sheriff is appointed by somebody, that creates a problem in terms of representing and being responsible to people in the local community. So, so you have to have elected sheriffs, and those elected sheriffs become kind of the, the, what, what would have been called in those days the marshals, the people responsible for making sure that if and when it was needed to gather a force, bring it together and marshal it, put it in order, You'd have a plan for doing that, and you'd know how to do it. That was agreed upon and understood by all the people in the community. Now, here's the final point. Final point is this. I have been apprehensive for years, because I spent part of my time in the government working on the National Security Council staff, specifically on terrorism. And one of the things I knew was that the time was coming, like San Bernardino, where we were going to be faced with organized terrorist attacks against what are called soft targets. Soft targets meaning schools, shopping malls, other places where people these days totally disarmed are going about their innocent business and then these terrorist thugs come along to start shooting and killing people. Uh, are, are we going to be able to establish some kind of national force or standing army that's going to be able to take care of that? Not until we have turned ourselves into a total totalitarian police state with every shred of freedom destroyed. 
How can we defend against a, a pervasive threat of that kind of terrorism and still maintain our liberty? Using the Second Amendment, but not the Second Amendment understood as my freedom to own a gun, my freedom to do, no, my responsibility to do what's necessary to defend my community, to work with others, to make sure there's a regular plan that we understand and have practiced so that we will know how to deal with people and to get to know people. That's one of the most important things who would also be exercising this responsibility, say at a school or in a shopping mall, so that we would be able to know just by our own acquaintance that that person over there with a gun is somebody to be trusted and that person over there with a gun is likely to be a terrorist because I don't know that guy. <laughs> and, and so that that's would be necessary. We need to get back to what was in fact the bedrock of America's local self-defense so that we can do it in a way that preserves and uses the right understanding of liberty instead of destroying it. And that is how, call your local sheriff, tell them you wanna form a local militia. That would be constitutional. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Electoral College. Dr. Chaps will be right back with more PIJN News. Introducing FactsCongress.com. Do you care about politics, defending pro-life causes, traditional marriage, and religious freedom? At FactsCongress.com, you can create any petition to Congress, and we will convert your e-petition instantly to a real fax paper on your congressman's desk. And the best part? It's free. Once your voice heard by multiple congressmen at FactsCongress.com, we can blast your petition to all 535 congressmen and senators instantly. And you don't even need a fax machine. Not only do we deliver your petitions instantly, but with our dashboard feature, you can quickly recruit friends on Facebook and Twitter to co-sign your petition. Do you care about a particular cause? You can build a virtual army of supporters at FactsCongress.com. Do you lead a church, faith-based organization, or PAC? We can even help you do fundraising. It's free. Just visit FactsCongress.com and try it out. Make a difference. Sign any petition today at FactsCongress.com. FactsCongress.com. Stay tuned for the end of our show to learn how to partner with this ministry. Here's Dr. Chaps. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Chaps. We're joined for one last five-minute segment. Dr. Alan Keyes, you're a constitutional scholar, and yet the way presidential politics is handled today, it's all personality driven. You're saying uh, that there's something different intended by the framers of our constitution. Well, there certainly was. Uh, I mean, we were talking ab about it uh, and I've talked about it uh, with, with others sometimes. Uh, people have a tendency to call this a democracy, right? That's not really true because the word democracy means the power or strength of the people. That's not what our country's based on. Our country is based on the assertion of the God-given rights, which is responsibilities and obligations to God, and the freedom that then those give rise to, rights of the people, including the right of liberty, which then eventually expresses itself in everything we know as constitutional government, right? That's the people acquitting, using their liberty to acquit their responsibility to God, to have communities that are well-ordered and decent and respectful of justice and right. And we're that, a republic, not a democracy. And that's a republic. Why is it a republic? Because rights are our common possession from God. The word res means the things, and the words publica means that belong to the people. Res publica, the things of the people. What are the things that belong to all of us? The rights that come to us from God. So we are a republic in the truest sense of the term. And what is the republic based on in terms of implementation? 
that everybody gets together and make every decision? No, that would be cumbersome and it actually wouldn't work because you need special knowledge somehow to make decisions and you need to take the time to develop that special knowledge which people taking care of their families and making sure their businesses are productive and their farms are productive, they don't have the time to do that. So you choose somebody that you trust to represent you, to go collect the knowledge and then to apply it in a way that is in conformity with your obligation as you understand it to God, to your family and to your community. That's representation. The, elector, the, the uh, presidential election is supposed to be about exercising our liberty in that sense to choose representatives. Let, tell me something. Is that what happens on, on a election day for president? That we choose based on this is the one who's going to represent me? What the Constitution sees for that day and what we actually do are two different things now. The Constitution, let me ask the audience a question. Uh, who, do you, who do you vote for? in the general election next year for president. Who are you actually voting for, according to the Constitution? Is it Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, the front runners, if, in, if they are the nominees? No, the Constitution doesn't see them. In terms of the constitutional language, they don't exist. Who's running for office on election day when you and I go to the polls? Who's actually running for office? People aren't running for president. They're running to be the electors who will choose the president. That's what actually, in constitutional terms, in other words, take away what you know from the media and from the parties and all of this. Those things don't exist for the Constitution. So we don't vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. We vote for the Electoral College That's who right. will go on this executive search committee to find. Well, wait, wait, we have to introduce that because okay. m most people have the idea now, which has been imposed on us because this party system has hijacked and destroyed the constitutional meaning of the day. On that day, what people are supposed to do in the first instance is choose somebody they believe is the best representative to go and be part of a search committee that's going to choose the president of the United States. I put it that way because that's a concept we understand, don't we? I mean, corporations and all of this, we talk about it all the time. Do all the stockholders get together and try to choose as a CEO? Uh, most companies recognize that that would be disastrous because people who share uh, an interest in the company don't necessarily share a knowledge of its everyday affairs and the requirements to keep it going. So you need to be able to find people that you could delegate with the responsibility of spending all their time for a while developing the knowledge needed to make an informed choice about who should be the CEO of the United States. Uh, and, 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 the, and, the, and the founders didn't say you could do that by depending on the national media and the broadcast because they didn't have them. How did you do it? You did it by depending on your own experience. You did it because the electors were supposed to be people you chose from amongst people you'd worked with, known with, labored with. Uh, you it. have worked on education, who have worked on gun rights and defending your gun rights, who have been part of the militia and acquitted their responsibility. You look at the biographies of all the founders, you'll find them doing these things. They were lifted up by their fellows who knew them because they'd worked with them, because they had, had knew others who had worked with them and said, this guy thinks the way we do, we're acts out of the way time. we do, and can do the job. We're out of time for today, but more tomorrow. We'll do one last show with Dr. Ellen Keyes. Turn in tomorrow or call us for prayer at 866-Obey-God. We'll see you next time.
Chaplain Klingenschmidt is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy who earned his Ph.D. in theology from Regent University. As a former Navy chaplain, by taking a public stand for freedom of speech and religious expression, and by sacrificing his own 16-year career and million-dollar pension, he was vindicated by the U.S. Congress, who changed the law and restored freedom for military chaplains to pray in Jesus' name. Dr. Chaps not only defended the Constitution, but his petitions have helped change the law in 10 states, restoring freedom to pray in Jesus' name. Dr. Chaps need your financial support to stay on the air. Would you please send your best donation today? Please visit PrayInJesusName.org to donate online. Or you can mail a check to Pray In Jesus Name Ministries, Post Office Box 77077, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80970. You can also call us toll free right now at 866-Obey-God. That's 866-O-B-E-Y-G-O-D. Please sign up for our free emails at PrayInJesusName.org. Again, that's PrayInJesusName.org.